and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague and co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. So we uh, didn't know quite what to do today, because it's this weird space at the beginning of the season when everything is interesting, but nothing is analytically conclusive. So we have a couple shows to play with per week now. I think later this week, we're going to do more of an interview-based show, and today's going to be more of a banter-based show. It's just going to be maybe 10 or so things that have caught our eye from the first week of the season that were just weird or unprecedented or things we hadn't seen before. And that's one of the nice things about baseball coming back. You start to see weird stuff. You might not care that the Orioles start out 5-0 and or whatever, but the weird stuff is still weird. All the more weird because we just had a winter with no weird baseball. So going to talk about a bunch of things. Yeah, there's uh, enough of it to fill a 40-minute podcast, even though there's <laughs> not enough information to... like. I know, I know it's early because I spent my first three picks on pitchers in fantasy baseball and I'm losing every single pitching column this week. So, yeah. okay. Before we get started, though, we haven't yeah. played college baseball player or X in a, in a long time. So no, we haven't. it's time to dust that one back up. Um, right. So on Saturday, I was watching the South Carolina Vanderbilt game. And uh, my brother was as well. And he texted me to note that every single Vanderbilt pitcher had a good old boy name. He said uh-huh. it sounded like a click hole bit. So <laughs> in, in the interest of that, we're going to play Vanderbilt pitcher or character from Robert Penn Warren's All the Kings Met. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I've, I've seen the movie, but uh, it's been a while. So I'm going to be going into this blind. Okay. First up, Penn Murphy. College baseball. Yeah. And it's M U R F E E. Okay. <laughs> all right. Cass Mastern. Oh, I'll say all the King's men. That's all the King's men. He was a significant character in the book. I don't remember if he was in the movie or not. Yeah. Um, and the third one, Paxton Stover. College baseball. All right. You three for three. We're gonna make all it right. make it harder. I was when I was <laughs> thinking about what we were gonna do, I was just going down the leaderboard and I came across the name that I thought you would enjoy just divorced of, of this game uh-huh. and that's uh itchy burts of texas a&m corpus christi <laughs> gonna have to spell that one for me <laughs> <laughs> itchy exactly the way you'd expect it burts b-u-r-t-s he's a, a freshman infielder out of league city texas wow do we have a official name is that his given uh, name is uh, that david i think Okay. His, right. his, uh, yeah, he's he's listed on his perfect game profile as David Itchy Burtz. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I never know quite what to make of the the ones that are just nicknames, but are excellent because, like in the name of the year bracket, those are real names. And if it's just Itchy or Fuzzy, right? There's mm-hmm. a college baseball player called Fuzzy, but if it's not their actual names, you can nickname someone anything. Yeah, so I'm, still, I don't know I like how he got the name. He's from from Rounders from League City, which is the Johnson Space Center is closer to League City than it actually is to Houston. Has to be a disgusting origin story, one would think. It's gotta be some sort of jock itch related origin story. Yeah. Oh, also from the the world of college baseball, I checked in on on Louisville's Brendan McKay, who is a first baseman coom left-handed pitcher. He is hitting 404, 520, 660 entering Sunday's action, and he mm-hmm. has a 140 ERA, 68 strikeouts, 10 walks in 45 innings. All right. Um, he is and Louisville is Louisville plays a usually plays a pretty easy schedule, but like that's a perennial national championship contender from the ACC, so he's just not beating up on anybody. He's going to I can't imagine anybody else 
us winning the Golden Spikes. I just thought you might enjoy college baseballs. I mean, he's the Shohei Otani of college yeah. baseball right now. Is he more of a hitting prospect or a pitching prospect? He's more know? of a pitching prospect. It's weird. So every like it seems like every team has at least one two-way guy. Uh-huh. And there have been a lot of good ones who have gone, you know, even in the first couple rounds. And recently, I think, you know, every single Every single team, when they draft this guy, they make him a pitcher or a hitter. And they've done, like for the for the significant ones, they've done the exact opposite of what I would have done with pretty much every single player, whether it's A.J. Reed or, or Aaron Brown, who was, you know, I liked him a lot as a pitcher coming out of Pepperdine, then the Phillies made him an outfielder. Mm-hmm. There's a kid out of TCU named Lucan Baker, who is, I, I, when I saw him last year, was the biggest 18-year-old I'd ever seen up close in my life, and he's going to be a first baseman rather than a pitcher. So, uh-huh. yeah, it's I I like McKay a lot better as a, as a pitcher just because I don't think he's got the power to play at first base and, you know, at, in a post-Justin Smoke world. I can't uh-huh. imagine, you know, I'm, I'm a little war- wary of a college first baseman. All right. Well, we're only a couple months away from the draft, so that'll be your time to shine. Yeah. Okay, so weird stuff that we've seen in baseball thus far, not going in any particular order. Okay, so on Friday night uh, in the Brewers-Cubs game, Carlos Torres was pitching to Wilson Contreras, and I say pitching to Wilson Contreras because he threw over to first base uh, (laughs) trying to get Jason Hayward more than he actually threw to the plate. Uh, It was a five-pitch at bat leavened with seven pickoff attempts. So, yeah. <laughs> and you watched this. Was he getting booed? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So good. it was in Milwaukee, and like you know, a Brewers Cubs game. Milwaukee's not far from from Chicago. I've done the you know the stay in Milwaukee, go to a game in Chicago the next day kind of thing. Um, so it was probably more Cubs fans than Brewers fans, but it was still weird to see him get booed. Uh, in his home stadium for doing that. And then mm-hmm. the booing started after the second pickoff attempt. And okay. I think there was something going on between um, him and, and Jesus Aguilar because Aguilar like was like was into it. Like he gave him a big nod after pickoff attempt number five. Um, <laughs> and like he never got close. He never got close to picking yeah. off Hayward. And the other thing is like it was a one run game in the, or it was a tie game in the ninth. And Hayward's a pretty good base stealer. But he's 82%. I looked it up 82% since it started 2014 in 66 attempts. Like, mm-hmm. this is not 1985 yeah, not Vince Coleman we're, we're <laughs> no. dealing with here. No, he stole 11 bases last year. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, were they like lobs over? Were they real attempts to, to pick him off or were they just kind of check him? You know how there, so there's the, the real attempt to pick off and then there's the lob just like to let, the runner know that you know he's there and it was mm-hmm. like that in between throw okay yeah mm-hmm. where like if hayward had literally fallen asleep he wouldn't have been able to get back but I yeah just don't, i have no idea what all this was about <laughs> well i kind of admire it there was one time in 2012 when bruce chen threw over 10 times during one at bat with denard span on first and i think chen had picked off span previously and if you look at the numbers, Russell Carlton at Baseball Prospectus did an article on pickoff attempts a couple of years ago, and he found that every pickoff attempt is worth 0.01 runs for a few different reasons, but largely because it actually makes a difference if the guy goes. The success rate after a pickoff attempt is 12 percentage points lower wow. than than not. So if you were going to have a, an 80 
2% success rate, you would have a 70% success rate. Now, I don't think it compounds necessarily so that if you do it seven times, he right. loses he's a... all the way down. Uh, he's, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, he didn't try to run because he knew he wasn't going to... Exactly. There was no chance. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it quite works that way, but there is a real quantifiable value to throwing over there. And it's boring for everyone watching, but I kind of admire the pitcher's persistence in, in doing that. It's another example of how often the analytically correct thing in baseball is the boring thing for spectators, unfortunately, which seems to be the opposite of, say, basketball, where shooting three-pointers is fun for everyone. But yeah, this is, I mean, it takes some stones, I suppose, to do this in a road park when you know everyone in the ballpark is going to be booing you every time, and yet you persist. Yeah. So I I keep thinking of this thing that Bill James suggested in the New Historical Baseball Abstract. And like the function of having read that book so many times over the, the past 15 years is everything that happens makes me think of something in that book. But yeah. he suggested that pitchers get, I think, one free throw to the bases every inning. And after that, an unsuccessful pickoff throw counts as a ball. And hmm. I would I would love it. I think yeah. that there could be because if you, I mean, if you disincentivize throwing to the bases, then obviously stolen bases will go up, and that's awesome. You know, uh-huh. stolen bases are fun. I think that we should, you know, we should see ten guys steal 50, 50 bases every season, and you know, mm-hmm. and like almost as much as I think mound visits and pickoff throws are the two things that really take the air out of the game. And yes. To- yeah, I'm with you on on mound visits for sure. But yeah, pickoff attempts, sure. Yeah, if we want to limit those, that would be okay. I wouldn't miss them that much. But as long as they're there, I hope that no one else does what Carlos Torres did. But I kind of admire that he did it. All right. So in the realm also of extended matchups, we have Mike Trout and Felix Hernandez had a 14 pitch at bat on Saturday night, the longest at bat of either player's career. And this was really fun because on Saturday night, I watched the Sunday documentary that aired on MLB Network, Mike Trout at Millville to MVP. And I'm I'm a talking head Featured in that documentary. That. Yeah. So I wanted to to watch it. I was having a weird hair day and no one told me. So that marred the experience for me. But still, so we were watching that documentary and it was kind of trying to convey how just timeless and amazing Mike Trout is. And my fiance said, why don't we just watch Mike Trout? Because, you know, we don't often tune into Angels games necessarily. It it happens sometimes when he does something or it just happens to be the game that's interesting that day. But this time we just said, why don't we tune in just to watch Mike Trout? He is this guy in the documentary and he's actually out there every day making history. And it turned out to be a really good game to just watch Mike Trout because he had this incredibly protracted at bat in the first inning. And then there was another showdown with Felix where he struck out. He ended up striking out looking in this 14 pitch confrontation. But then in the seventh inning, once Felix had left the game, he hit a game winning home run. So you've got all the all the highlights of Mike Trout in this game. He also besieged with balloons in the outfield at one point, and he tried to catch in a balloon, but it popped before he could get to it. So all sorts of interesting stuff. But this at bat as a fan of extended at bats, particularly between two really interesting players, this was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, what struck me from this is every pitch that he so there were there were fourteen pitches and nine of them I think could be broadly described as low and away, and five yeah. of them were up and in like fastballs, mm-hmm. 
either on the corner or just off it. And he only swung at one of the pitches up and in and fouled it off. And that was, I mean, the three balls and then he eventually struck out looking were all fastballs up sort of on the inside corner. And mm-hmm. uh, he started doing an interesting thing on those pitches low and away. And they weren't always change-ups or, or breaking balls, but he started tracking it and then adjusted and then and you know was just able to get his bat on it. And he started getting under and popped up a couple of fastballs. And that was just sort of... Mm-hmm. It, you know, interesting to watch like his strike zone judgment up and in was just so was so perfect. And then he just mm-hmm. started chasing low and away. Yeah. Well, speaking of Russell Carlton analysis, he did one also on what happens in long plate appearances. And basically for every foul the hitter has in it at bat, he gets better. So just seeing more pitches within an at bat. And as long as the count stays constant, the hitter gains the advantage. So you will see these long at bats where the hitter ends up triumphing in the end. There's the famous 18 pitch at bat, Joey Cora versus Matt Clement, I think that ends with Cora hitting a home run. Although there is also the 20 pitch at bat, which is the longest on record. And that is Bartolo Colon. And he ends up getting the strikeout at the end of that of Ricky Gutierrez. But I always enjoy these, seeing the kind of mind games once you've already showed the hitter everything you have, right. basically. You're, <laughs> you're not expected to, like, like you don't plan for more than, like, six or seven pitches because, yeah. you know, that only happens to you once or twice a season. Right. So. Yeah. And the showdown between these two guys, obviously Felix is not the pitcher that he once was, doesn't have the same stuff, but he is still effective and he can change speeds a lot and throw a lot of different pitches and change locations. And so this was fun. And and he ended up winning the battle with a really pretty beautiful called strike kind of mm-hmm. maybe on the inside part of the plate and Trout took it. And that was that. So that was a nice little moment between two marquee players who have not had a lot of moments together on big stages because of the failures of their teams. That was a real downer note to end on. <laughs> these are these yeah. two great players we love watching and they had like a, you know, the, the Fisher Spassky match of, of, of an at bat and both yeah. of their teams suck. And <laughs> Yep. But maybe not this year. We'll see. Probably. All right. Next one, Jeremy Guthrie, who was making a spot start yes. for the Nationals, got totally creamed by the Phillies, had a negative six game score. And I think you were watching this live and then you rewatched it. I, so. I watched part of it live because yeah. I just... It was long enough that you right, could get like, notified that something was happening here. And well, still that's, see that's it. how it unfolded. After about 10 minutes, uh, either Mal or Claire in the Slack channel were like, are you watching this? And I was like, yeah. no, not really. And then 10 minutes later, I, you know... <laughs> turned it on and then watched the last 10 minutes. So, all right. So I took more than a page's worth of notes from, (laughs) from this inning. And I want to go through them one by one. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the first thing is Howie Kendrick got on and uh, he was the second hitter of the game and got just this absurd jump on Guthrie uh, to steal second base, which was followed by Odubel Herrera walking and then flipping his bat. Are you familiar with this? Uh huh. Yeah. The uh, the Odubel Herrera bat flip walk, which (laughs) Mm -hmm. walk bat flip with which he almost killed Michael Franco the other day. (laughs) Yeah. It takes a while in these innings for, and this is another thing that I love about baseball is like when you get something absurd, it takes forever to develop. So you don't notice that you're you're in the middle of 
something that, for instance, is going to make a list of the 10 weirdest thing that, things that happen in the first week of the season until you're mm-hmm. already like two thirds of the way through it. So right. the the Phillies booth of Tom McCarthy, Mike Schmidt and John Cruck was, you know, just talking about until about halfway through their attitude was pretty much, oh, good for these guys. You know, they'd been struggling to score runs. This team's not expected to be very good, but look at them really teeing off on the Nationals and it's great to see them score runs and and so on and so forth. And eventually that changed. But I bring up the broadcasters because Kruk had an amazing inning. Um, uh-huh. It was just a series of... So at one point he says, you know, Guthrie had struggled at a, a couple stops in AAA last year. He's just barely hanging on. Schmidt had a line about how he coached Guthrie at the World Baseball Classic a while back and didn't realize this was the same Jeremy Guthrie. <laughs> which I think tells you a lot about how closely Mike Schmidt follows baseball nowadays. Mm-hmm. But yeah. John Crock was saying, you know, you feel nervous for him because he's he's pitching for his baseball life, which I think the mm-hmm. direct quote, which just sucks, like knowing how yes. that inning ended. And, and of course, it was it, his birthday. Right. And it happened on his <laughs> birthday, too. And like, it wouldn't shock me if this is his last yeah. Uh, major league appearance because the Nationals DFA'd him. Mm-hmm. So Crockett apparently, this has been something the Phillies announcers have talked about since I was a kid, like dating back to Richie Ashburn. They talk about how, like, about the state of their scorecard a lot. Mm-hmm. And Cruck apparently has a rule where if a team hits around, uh, he stops keeping score. So <laughs> he says he, you know, like apparently this was the first time that it, he had seen that in the first inning or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the moment. That this gets weird is Guthrie's pretty much out of the inning. There are two outs. There's four runs in. There's a couple guys on base, and Aaron Nola comes up. And <laughs> Nola, in, going into this game, is three for fifty-three, and Guthrie runs the count to three zero immediately. Yeah, and there's a strike. Nola fouls off a pitch. He goes chasing ball four with a lifetime batting average of like oh eighty-seven, <laughs> and then uh, and then Guthrie walks in and walks in. Cesar Hernandez to score the next run. Apparently, the National League record. So the the Phillies stopped with twelve runs, uh, and they sent sixteen batters to the plate. Do you want to guess what the National League record for batters in an inning is? Hmm, twenty one. It is twenty one. Oh, okay. So <laughs> imagine sending twenty one batters to the plate in one <laughs> inning, like. It's, it's just staggering. <laughs> like, anything bigger than like 12 is just so impossible to imagine. So, yeah. And this was the fifth time since 1893 that there had been 10 or more runs in a start of less than an inning. A couple of those times were in the 19th century. So, one so of them was not- Jeremy Guffrey. Yeah, well, he did right. He did. He had one in 2015 that was also terrible, right? I mean, it's, I don't remember uh, what the line was exactly, but he gave up like 11 runs in a start. And I think Kruk uh, referenced that too. It's sort of sad because he seems to be a really good guy and a funny guy, and you never really like to see someone get knocked around to this extent. And he's just trying to hang on, as you mentioned, and this will probably be the nail in the coffin of his career, but it was just, you know, the Nationals needed someone. They had been carrying an extra bench player. They weren't going to need a fifth starter often, and they had optioned Joe Ross to AAA, and he wasn't eligible to come back yet because you have to stay in the minors for 10 days unless someone's on the DL, so he couldn't come back. So they had to bring up Jeremy Guthrie, who is not really a major league pitcher at this point, and (laughs) it showed so really crazy start 
Jeremy Guthrie is two and a half years removed from starting game seven of the World Series. <laughs> yes. Not that it was not weird then that he was starting well, fair, game seven enough. of the World Series. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but yeah. All right. So shall we stick with Phillies since we're on the topic of the Phillies? Yeah, fine. There have been a couple of strange stories this week where it seems as if the Braves have just appropriated Philadelphia sports icons and as someone who has written a book about Philadelphia sports icons, I figure you would have opinions on this. So the Braves signed Ryan Howard to a minor league deal, and they also hired Allen Iverson to make a sort of strange video where it was a takeoff on his practice talking about practice video but in this when case you it started was... that sentence i was worried that your basketball ignorance extended to <laughs> not knowing about the practice rant and i was yeah <laughs> no so it wasn't completely out of context but it was a it was a takeoff on that except it was talking about parking and it was meant to diffuse the concerns about parking at suntrust park so thoughts on the braves stealing your childhood <sighs> so the Howard thing is just sad. Like everything that's mm-hmm. happened to Ryan Howard since like starting with him tearing his Achilles while making the last out of the 2011 yeah. NLDS has just like made me want to cry because he was I mean he was such an important part of those those Phillies teams and was just nothing but a you know a model citizen and a nice guy and just because of the contract and because like he aged the way you would expect a first baseman who looks like him to age has Mm -hmm. just been completely shit on for, you know, pretty much since he turned 30. And, you know, I I feel bad for him. And part of me wishes that he just for his own sake, like, you know, he obviously wants to keep playing just because for some reason Mm -hmm. after after the past couple of seasons, this is still fun for him. And, you know, I hope he plays as long as he wants to. But Mm -hmm. I wish he had found a situation other than a National League team that already has a really good first baseman. Like, he feels like he could be a useful platoon DH for somebody who, you know, for an American League team who needs that. And even then, like, like, did it have to be the Braves? Um, (laughs) So, but, you know, this is, he was a free agent. He can sign with whoever he wants. The Braves can sign whoever they want. I wish him nothing but success, even through the most partisan lens that I'm, I'm capable of, uh, mm-hmm. of viewing it through. And so this news broke uh, not too long after our interview with Chipper Jones, at which yeah. reminded me of something I read in his book, which was that Ruben Amaro tried to talk him out of retiring mm-hmm. and tried to sign him to the 2013 Phillies, which I, you know, and Chipper said uh, in the book that he, he told Amaro something like, if I signed with the Phillies, they'd burn down my house in Atlanta. And, right. uh, but you know that makes a lot more sense because Chipper was really good, all you know, even yeah. up till till age forty. He hit what I'm looking at it two eighty seven, three seventy seven, four fifty five at age forty. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, you know, he can. Well, in his case, it wasn't that the Braves didn't want him back, right. right? He he wanted to retire, whereas the Phillies were very eager for the Ryan Howard yeah. era to be yeah. over. So you can't blame a guy who wants to keep playing for going to a division rival if his own team doesn't want him back. Right, so, exactly. Different situation. Yeah. So the Iverson thing, it's so weird because there's no connection between Iverson and <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh and the Braves. Like if it were the Nationals even, because he, you know, he went to college in DC, like that would have made even a little bit of sense, but he never played in Atlanta. He's never, you know, didn't have any memorable basketball memories against Atlanta that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think this is just something that like, you know, Allen Iverson is uh he'll I don't know, he's sort of in the the Pete Rose phase of, of his retirement, I think would be uh-huh. 
a diplomatic way of, of putting it. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was meant to be sort of lighthearted and funny and maybe it was, but like the fact that the Braves have just been so exploitative in their milking of exactly. local communities to fund their ballparks at every level of their system, not just with Cobb County and, and this park, but just all the way down the chain. That combined with the fact that there do really seem to be some serious transportation issues with SunTrust Park. Like I, I don't know if the message of the commercial was like it almost seemed to be like, don't ask Alan Iverson about parking, ask us well, about parking. Well, I agree parking. with that. You should not ask Alan Iverson about <laughs> no. parking at the Brave Stadium. Right. But the idea that like no one should be worried about any of these things, because why are we talking about parking when it's baseball season and we're right. interested in winning the World Series, getting to the playoffs? I mean, sure, but <laughs> it kind of That's, does matter if no one could get to your ballpark. So. Right. And it, it came out and not only did it come off as as kind of flippant, like stop, you know, stop complaining is always a weird message to send. Yeah. And not only stop complaining, but like. You know, stop whining even is mm -hmm. it's more pointed than stop complaining. And it's a that's a weird message to send to your consumers, particularly a set of consumers who you've just built out of four hundred million dollars for. <laughs> and like and like they got so pissed about that, that Cobb County, Georgia voted out a an incumbent Republican county supervisor like mm -hmm. that's staggering the, the amount that you have to screw up in that <laughs> office to not get reelected because nobody like nobody knows who you are. So everybody's right. just going to vote party line and or vote for the incumbent who has mm -hmm. the most name recognition. And, yeah. you know, to be able to screw up that much over a stadium deal is huge. And like they did this on purpose. They they got rid of their their stadium within the city of Atlanta. And, you know, the mm -hmm. city of Atlanta isn't that big, but Atlanta, as I'm making quotes, is like five million people throughout you know, several different counties, all connected by a highway, which, by the way, is on fire and falling apart right now. <laughs> right. So, like, it's just staggering to me. Okay. I was going to say it's <laughs> staggering to me that you would build a stadium purposely devoid of public transit. Mm -hmm. Like, I live in Houston where Minute Maid Park has light rail access, the NERG has light rail ac access, and there's nothing like that in Cobb County, which mm -hmm. is, you know, of course, by design because you what they want to do is keep people who might use public transit, poor people, people from uh, from downtown Atlanta, you know, there's definitely a racial component to this. They want to mm -hmm. keep them out of the stadium. And so it fails not only because it's supposed to be funny and it's not, mm -hmm. you know, that happened 15 years ago. Those jokes are old by now, but because the message that that it's conveying is so not the one that that I think the Braves want to convey. And it's just mm -hmm. it's staggering to me that nobody in the in in their PR department saw that coming. Yeah. OK, so pro Ryan Howard signing pro Ryan Howard signing very anti anti Allen Allen Iverson Iverson. video. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I still love Alan Iverson, by the way. There's I mean, he's done way more important things like than than this. And I've rooted for him anyway. So. Mm -hmm. All right. So we will take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we will be back with more weird baseball. 
Here at The Ringer, we take pride in bringing you baseball's greatest moments as they happen, but sometimes the greatest moments turn out to be epic meltdowns. Roger Clemens throwing a broken bat at Mike Piazza, the Yankees blowing a 3-0 lead in the 2004 ALCS, or Jim Brockmeyer's on-air meltdown on full display in front of millions of listeners. Speaking of Jim, years after his breakdown went viral, he's back from his career low, calling minor league baseball games in IFC's new show, Brockmeyer, starring Hank Azaria, our guest on last week's episode, and Amanda Peet. Catch Brockmeyer every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on IFC or catch up on the IFC app or IFC On Demand. I also want to remind you about SeatGeek. Baseball is back, and you can catch all the action in person with SeatGeek, the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices all season long. There's nothing quite like being in the stadium for the biggest plays and the weirdest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you there for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's the easiest way I know to shop for tickets. You can be anywhere. With just a few taps, you can instantly find seats. It doesn't just have to be sports, either. You can find concert tickets, comedy, theater, and the whole process is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever, as well as saving you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately find the best seats that fit your budget. And every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, Ringer MLB Show listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase, so download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. That's one word ringer mlb for twenty dollars off your first seat geek purchase all right cardinals portion of this podcast okay. we have the yadier molina Let's sticky baseball Russell carlton wrote anything about this <laughs> not that i know of but yeah this is like in the era of bloopers i don't think we're even in that era anymore like what do you have actual blooper reels where people would buy a vhs or whatever to I watch to bloopers? One of those. I, yeah right so now i guess we just watch the gif a million times and then it's over but this was a classic mm-hmm. this is molina the baseball sticking to his chest protector and him just sort of standing with his hands on his hips with his legs spread out just like what happened <laughs> where here is it? Yeah. <laughs> not knowing where the ball was because it was stuck to him like velcro and of course there is something odd going on here and Molina and Mike Matheny both said oh they had no idea how this could possibly happen and Molina was he was cleared of any rules violation and I don't think there is a rule against the catcher having some foreign substance on his chest protector. Well the weird thing about this and you know, there, there, people were talking about this when it happened is how how intent like the Cardinals and even the Cubs and MLB were of of doing like the nothing to see here. Like, yeah, oh, no, right. there's definitely not. You know, even if it's illegal for a pitcher to have something on, you know, something like pine tar on his throwing hand, like baseball players invent so many ways to make their bats sticky or their hands sticky. Like yeah. I imagine a professional ball player's hands are like a they're like a toddler's mouth that like <laughs> it's just just stuff like grime just sticking yeah. to everything. So I could imagine, you know, something like they've got the the hit stick stuff that you see people rubbing mm-hmm. on on bats or, or if it's pine tar or something like that, just getting on a Molina's chest protector. Mm-hmm. So the weird thing is that it's stuck. Yeah, I mean, it had to be coated in this stuff. Right. Not well, I don't know. Like I don't know dab. how much of it was the baseball and how much of right. it was, was Molina, but like, so Cecil, you know, he bounced that pitch, but it was still traveling pretty hard. But it, but at the same time, Molina sort of like he did what you're supposed to do as a catcher is get down, get your chest in front of it, sort of open mm-hmm. up your shoulders and then bring it into your body. So he sort of shepherd. It's not like it just 
you know, hit him at 90, 91 yeah. miles an hour straight to the belly and it stuck there, but it was still traveling pretty fast. And it stayed there while he was standing up, turning around, like frantically <laughs> looking for the ball. So like it got on there really good. And I yeah. just had no idea, like if that kind of stuff is on the baseball, like mm. we're going to talk about Adam Wainwright in a second, but that Adam Wainwright stuff ought to happen all the time. Yeah. Well, this is kind of reignited the debate about foreign substances. And we know that just about every pitcher, it seems, has something applied. And it's like, just don't be dumb. Just don't make it incredibly obvious. Like, say, Michael Pineda did at one point. Don't have some huge patch somewhere on yourself that is very obviously foreign substance. But the players seem happy with how this stuff works. Like, hitters seem to prefer that pitchers get a good grip on the ball so that they don't get drilled and pitchers obviously prefer it too. Now, if it's performance enhancing in some way, as you'd think it must be, then maybe if you're trying to come up with ways to combat strikeouts, you eventually find some way to litigate against this. But when the catcher has that much stuff on himself that a ball can stick to him. It really is at a, at a level that maybe we don't realize. (laughs) Yeah. I had so. The other night I went out to dinner and at this uh, this chicken and waffles place and I they had this like Korean barbecue sauce on the chicken mm-hmm. sandwich I ate and it was really runny and it ran down and like got underneath my wedding ring and it took me like five minutes to <laughs> to clean the stickum off my hand and I'm just uh-huh. imagining that but like all over your entire body. Yeah. <laughs> our base like I feel like baseball players just must be sticky all the yeah. time. Yeah. I mean it's it's got to be hard to get away with this stuff in the HD TV era, but this was a new level. So also with the Cardinals, there were a couple other sort of blooper-ish events. There was Stephen Piscotty recently extended Stephen Piscotty getting drilled three times on a trip around the bases. So he got hit by a pitch in the batter's box and then he got hit by a pitch sliding into second on his elbow. And then he got hit by a pitch in his helmet sliding into home plate and he had to have the concussion protocol administered and he was okay. But it was a really rough trip around the bases. And then there was Adam Wainwright delivering a pitch, spiking it about halfway between the mound and home plate if that and it looked comical it looked like the old Raul Banez throw from the outfield that you see sometimes where he just spikes it directly into the ground in yeah. front of him and everyone was gifting this and making fun of this and as Wainwright later explained it was some kind of cross up where he and Molina were out of sync, which is amazing given how many pitches they have thrown to one another over the course of their careers. But he had started his delivery and then he had seen that Molina was calling for a different pitch than the one Wainwright was throwing. So he says he just went ahead with the delivery and spiked the ball into the ground, even though there were a couple runners on base. So that was risky. But yeah. even riskier, I think, than just hanging on to it and taking the balk. Because that ball yeah. gets away, you have no idea what can happen. I'm at, mm-hmm. I'm shocked that doesn't happen more often. Like uh-huh. just like the ball slips out of the pitcher's hand and goes God knows where. Mm-hmm. Well, these guys have thrown a lot of pitches yeah, in their so. life. They're pretty right. good. They at don't it. they don't interact <laughs> with the baseball the way you or I do because that happens to me about once every five times I throw. Um, yeah, well, it is literally stuck to them, so that helps. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, and as for Piscotti, I don't know, nothing much to say. That about first it, one but... looked like it hurt. Like yeah, uh, like. Taking it off the inside of your back elbow, like right on the funny bone, 
Mm-hmm. Like that, that was the one even more than getting hit in the head. And I know like, you know, you get hit in the head, you get like, that's just sort of a, I don't know, that's less disconcerting. Cause like, I mm-hmm. know the getting hit in your head thing is something mm-hmm. we see a fair amount, but like just taking one off the inside of your back elbow just looked really painful. I thought mm-hmm. it was cool. They not cool. Um, I thought it was interesting <laughs> that on the steel attempt, they hit him right on the elbow guard. Yeah. Which he right. was for some reason still wearing like while all. he was. Yes. While he's running around the, the bases. So I guess that mm-hmm. was good for him. Yeah. All right. A few more. We've got Clayton Kershaw allowing back-to-back home runs for the first time in his career. And this was what? Uh, Para, Gerardo Para hit the, the second one. Mark The Reynolds. first one was Mark Reynolds, who is still in baseball. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they hit three home runs off Kershaw. But this was uh, the first time he had lost to the Rockies in years. And the first time he had ever ever allowed back-to-back home runs. I would remark on two things. First is that there might not be a better post-pitch screw-up reaction uh-huh. artist in baseball in Kershaw right now. Yeah. Like, cause I mean, he did the, I think it was after the Reynolds home run, the first one, he did the turn around and just bend over and put your hands on your, on your knees. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just because failure is so alien to him, the, yeah. it, it's still... He's still in a place where he can get worked up about it. I remember mm-hmm. he he started one of the spring training games I went to, and nobody cared about this game, but he bounced a curveball and cursed so loud you could hear it from the press box. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> yeah. The other thing is uh, one of the root, root Sports Rocky Mountains announcers, I think it was Jeff Houston, but if uh, anybody who was watching the game cares to correct us, I, I welcome that. He said, You can't overstate the value of Mark Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably, I could probably. Wait, to which, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the last time I've disagreed with an announcer <laughs> statement that much. Yeah, if you said he was like a two-win player, you'd probably be overstating. If a one-win player, you'd probably be overstating. Yeah, if you'd say he was a good player, you'd probably be overstating. Yeah, if you had to guess the first two players to go back to back against Clayton Kershaw, right. it would not have been Toronto Para and Mark Reynolds. I mean, Nolan Arnato hit a home run in the game, also off Kershaw. That's more understandable, but those Reynolds- two guys. Reynolds is That's actually less shocking to me than, than Paris because yeah, I mean, he's a righty and he'll run runs. into one yeah. and sure. yeah, it's in cores. So. Mm-hmm. All right. A couple more. We've got updates on two-way players. You you mentioned your your college two-way player. Right, but okay, in, yeah. yeah, in the majors, we've got Christian Bethencourt, former Ringer MLB show guest, and we've got Michael Lorenzen of the Reds who has added himself to that conversation. So things not going great for our pal Christian Bethencourt. He has a 32.4 ERA as we speak right now. That's in two outings, the second of which was disastrous. I mean, the first one, he gave up a few runs, but the second of which he recorded one out and he gave up four runs, three earned, walked four guys consecutively. So that's not great. That's the kind of outing that will get you removed from this Mm -hmm. role very quickly. So I am rethinking my over-under pick of over on the 17 relief appearances for 2017 that we had in our game a, a couple of weeks ago. If he doesn't get I himself straightened you, out very quickly, south. it definitely could. And Lorenzen is interesting. He is 
more of a reliever. He's a, a pretty good reliever, but he's also a, a good hitter, was a good hitter as an amateur. And he is now trying to be more of a bench bat, at least. And he had a home run last year that was very memorable and emotional because it came just after his father had died. And then he had a home run. And this time he just got a pinch hit plate appearance and he hit a home run again. And this was a a plan. The Reds are trying to use him not as like a full-time two-way guy like Bethancourt, but just using him as a a bench bat. And it seems like he has the skills. Yeah. Like you said, he was a really good hitter at at Fullerton and Uh uh, doing that, you know, getting good enough to the point where Fullerton doesn't bunt you every single time is, you know, speaks volumes about his ability to hit. So yeah, I. I mean, yeah. I, there's no reason not to do this if you're if you've got a guy with any sort of skills. Like I, I don't know why the Astros don't use AJ Reed as a mop up guy, for uh-huh. instance. Yeah, and we always say, oh, if you're a bad team, you should experiment and and do these kind of crazy things. And often that doesn't happen. I think because maybe bad teams don't have as much incentive to do it. They could just kind of be bad. Every win doesn't matter as much to them. But in this case, the Reds and the Padres probably the two worst teams in baseball and each of them has a guy like this so fun for us as long as it lasts yeah all right last couple ones here speaking of the padres the padres are tanking in some ways that we i don't think have seen despite the depths that the astros and the cubs plumbed a few years ago padres are really going for it and they have three rule five picks on their opening day roster, which is really crazy. I mean, teams will sometimes carry one of these guys who was in another organization and they pluck them out of that organization in the Rule 5 draft and you have to hang on to that pick all year on your roster or else he gets returned to his old organization. Hard enough to hide one of those guys on a big league roster all year. To try to do three of them, I think is unprecedented. I'm I'm doing some research so. on that yeah. currently, but I can't imagine that there's been anything like that. So the Padres have Alan Cordoba, Luis Torrens, who's a catcher. Cordoba is a shortstop and a right-handed pitcher, Miguel Diaz. They're carrying four catchers. That's right what I now. was going to say. Carrying <laughs> the three rule five guys isn't as weird as carrying four catchers. Yeah, right. And their opening day roster was not that embarrassing. It was like tied for last roughly, I think, payroll wise. I mean, but that's including a lot of money that they are paying to players who are no longer on their team. Guys that AJ Preller has traded away, guys like Matt Kemp and and Upton and Kashner. So they're paying 30 something million to those guys and 30 something million to the guys who are still on their team. So They are really going for cheapness. And to be fair, they have spent in other areas, other talent acquisition areas. They've spent a ton on international prospects. They spent a lot in the draft last year. And that's kind of what you expected from Preller. He's the draft and development oriented type executive. So he's investing at the lower levels like that. But right now, the lower levels are basically at the highest level because these three rule five guys have never played above a ball. And I'm curious to see how long they can keep up the charade here that these guys are are big leaguers and whether they'll actually try to get through the whole season carrying three of them because that is, I mean, even compared to Cubs and Astros teams that won 50-something games and were terrible, not sure we've seen anything quite like this. Right. They've got it. I mean, they're going to have a hard time keeping up. Not that embarrassing if they, if they don't right. turn things around. Yeah. 
All right. And lastly, just a, a couple of home run stories. We had Bumgarner hitting the two home runs on opening day and reopening the debate about how good a hitter he actually is. Is he a good hitter, period, or is he a good hitter for a pitcher? And then we have Salvador Perez, who has hit home runs in four straight games. And I like that story because it's just first half Salvi is so different from second half Salvi. And a lot of players, if you look at the first half, second half splits, it just doesn't mean that much. It's random. You look at his and it's pretty dramatic. As his body is being ground into dust from overuse. Yeah. And it happens right. every single year. I know. He never gets a day off and you see him at the end of the season and he's just worn down. That's and a big body you, to get up and down from a crouch is, 200 times a yeah, game too. If you look at his career stats, this might not include his last home run, but his first half stats, he has a 109 weighted runs created plus, which you know 100 is average. So he's 9% better than the league average hitter, which is really good for a catcher. In the second half, he is an 87 so he's significantly worse and it's not so much walks and strikeouts those rates are actually pretty similar it's power he just hits for a lot less power in the second half as presumably he gets tired and so here he is doing his thing in the first half before he gets worn down not that he's a guy who homers every game but you do wonder especially as he gets older will they start resting him more than they have and they did a little more last year but still he was among the leaders in in innings caught so you wonder whether they will ever give him a break and and what that could do but they haven't had great backup catchers so diminished salve might be better than non-diminished backup guy drew butera uh, speaking of guys who could have been two-way guys yes exactly and as for bumgarner you know he's been a a slightly above league average hitter period over the last three seasons but that's something like 250 plate appearances and you know he's a a different guy i think as a hitter than he was early in his career although he was a good amateur hitter also who maybe could have gone both ways but it's hard to say because he does strike out a lot he he just swings hard and hits the ball harder than any other pitcher does and The question with him is, well, if you were to make him a full-time hitter, not that there's any reason to do that, but if you you were, if you could stick him at DH or first base or something, how much better would he get just from seeing pitches all the time? No. No, no. I'm, I'm firmly in the good hitter for a pitcher camp. And uh-huh. like he's a really good hitter for a pitcher. But like, yep. you know, you look at it, even in his best years, 286 OBP in 2014, right. 275, 268 last year. You, you know, I guess like pitchers are never going to walk that much just because everybody's going to pound the strike zone against pitchers. But mm-hmm. I mean, he's just he's such a big, huge guy that when he runs and he's a good enough hitter to get the bat on the ball. And when that happens, it. It goes a long way. So I don't yeah. know. I, like, I don't know that if you put Carlos Rodon in the National League, I don't know that that he would be a whole lot worse than Bumgarner. Nobody was thinking, of, you know, he played both ways in college and nobody was thinking about putting him at first base. So, mm-hmm. OK, well, that is the first week in weirdness. Oh, Jeremy Hazelbaker is still not made out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so 
uh, the Diamondbacks haven't played yet uh-huh. as we record. So I'm just throwing that in, in there in case that is still right. good by the time this goes up. Yeah, we. I mean, we could do this every week because baseball is always weird. But soon we will have uh, more definitive conclusions we can draw. And uh, then we'll we'll have more analytically rigorous topics to talk about. But I hope so. For now, a salute to the weirdness. And, yeah. uh, and we'll be back on Thursday with uh, some guests. But I always enjoy the, the strange, fluky stuff that happens in baseball as, as much as anything else. Good, because that's all we got at this point in the season. <laughs> okay, so that will do it. We will talk to you all later this week. 